0: Lord, you're big and you love us and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. One October Wednesday in 2004, when I was a sophomore in college, I got a call from my dad and he was calling actually to tell me that his own father had passed away. As you can imagine, that was an emotional conversation. I don't remember all that was said, but I'll never forget how he finished the phone call. What he really wanted to leave me with is that uh, through tears, he said, Tim, let's keep this thing going. He said, let's keep this thing going. What he was trying to do by saying that was to help his college-age son to see that I was part of something bigger than myself, that my grandfather had been devoted to Jesus and that he had passed on that faith to his son and that my dad had then passed that faith on to his own son. And so I remember in the following days looking in the mirror and challenging myself, Tim, do not let this die with you. And actually, for 60 or 70 generations of Christians now, they've had some version of that conversation with the next generation, not always family members, but some version of the conversation, let's keep this thing going on and on and on from generation to generation, so much so that each one of us here, if we knew everything, could trace back our faith, those of us who are believers Generation to generation back to one of Jesus' original disciples who made a disciple, who made a disciple, who made a disciple, on down to us, in an unbroken chain that stretches back now 2,000 years. We could say, in one sense, that unbroken chain began in Matthew 28, and that's our scripture text for today. If you turn there with me, we'll be in Matthew chapter 28, the last verses of Matthew's gospel. At the point where we'll pick up the story, Jesus has been raised from the dead. His disciples, though, are fearful. They are feeling remorse for denying Jesus, and they don't know what's next. And what we'll see in this text is that Jesus comes to them, calming their fears. He speaks to them, restoring the broken relationship between them. And most importantly for our purposes today, he gives them a mission that relegates all of their failures to the past. So we're going to read now. um, And actually, if you're able, if you'd stand with me for the reading of God's Word here, Matthew chapter 28, I'll read verses 18 through 20, if you'll follow along. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This is the last sermon in our Marks of a Disciple series. We started this way back in September, we took a short break in the middle, but in this series, we've been exploring what it means to be an intentional follower of Jesus who's forever becoming more like him. And as we've walked our way through this series, we've treated it in concentric circles. We've said that right there in the middle was this upward dimension of discipleship, that there's an essential posture of a disciple in which we are joyfully submitted to to our Lord Christ. And then we moved to this second ring, what we called the inward dimension. And we said that there are certain things that characterize the inward life of a disciple, a follower of Jesus. There's a spirit sensitivity, there's scripture, there's prayer, there's repentance taking place. And then in this final section of the series, we've moved to the outward dimension, we've called it. Uh, These traits or marks deal with our relationships with other people. And there we've seen these marks, and today we come to the very last one, that a disciple makes disciples. Now, it might seem like that one is just kind of like a tacked-on one at the end, that the first ten maybe are the actual marks of a disciple, the distinguishing characteristics of a follower of Jesus. But then this one maybe is like the extra credit. Like if you want to go above and beyond once you're already a disciple and start uh, trying to get into like the bonus level of Christianity— then you can make disciples. But actually, um, what we're going to see today in the Scripture is that making disciples isn't part of the deluxe version of Christianity. It's actually part of the standard package. Like, in other words, a disciple who doesn't make disciples isn't really like a car without a sunroof. It's more like a car without wheels. uh, But let me make that case from the text today and try to convince you of that. We're going to see in this text a command from Jesus and then a process of going about following that command and then the ground and goal of that command. We'll have to uh, jump around the passage a little bit to uh, see all that, but we'll work our way through these three verses that we read. First, let's look at the command. It's in verse 19. There's actually, it's hard to tell in the English, but there's only one true command in this passage in the Greek, and it's one word uh, that we have translated, make disciples. And as soon as we hear that command to make disciples, we realize we've come full circle from where we started back in September when we looked at a, what it means to be a disciple. And we used this definition that a disciple is an intentional follower of Jesus, forever becoming more like him. And so at the outset of our exploration today, we can say that at very least where we're going today is the suggestion that... What we're called to do as people who make disciples is, at very least, to introduce others into this sort of relationship in order that they might become just this, intentional followers of Jesus, who themselves are becoming forever like him. And so, we'll get into more specifics of that as we go, but I want to address a question right off the outset that people have been raising lately in my circles, um, and it comes from verse 19. It's the question of who actually is called to make disciples. I want to go there right off the bat. Who is this command given to? And if you've been in the church uh, for a long time, the question might seem like an obvious one to you because you've probably heard any number of sermons on this text and you've heard preachers say, Jesus commands his disciples to make disciples and so you all go and make disciples, right? But in recent days, some have started to question uh, that premise. Whether we, today, are called to make disciples, whether that's a command that directly applies to us, or, they say, isn't this just given to Jesus' disciples, his immediate hearers, and aren't we going beyond what's warranted to say it's a command for ourselves? Um, So there's voices disputing this, so I want to just take a moment and address it. Um, We should acknowledge, first off, that this command is given to the 11, at least, right off the bat, Jesus' 11 remaining disciples, it seems in verse 17 that there are others probably present, but those present are there, according to verse 16, as disciples, in their role as disciples. So, when Jesus begins speaking to those present in verse 18, he's addressing them as disciples, as followers of his. And for that reason, Christians in every century have read this very passage and concluded that Since Jesus was giving this command to his disciples, all of us who are identified as disciples now, this command also applies to us. And I think there's warrant for that just directly in verse 20. I don't think we need anything beyond verse 20 to prove that case. Jesus says there to his disciples, let's say it's even, even if it's just the 11, it says, teaching them out there to observe all that I have commanded you. In other words, whatever Jesus has commanded his disciples, he wants them to pass on as a command to others as well. And so we have there uh, the reason for us to take this passage and say we are justified. If we are disciples of Jesus, this is a command that applies directly to us today. So it's hard to overstate this, I think, that the plan of Jesus for the survival and the growth of the Christian faith it's right here, that a disciple would make a disciple who would make a disciple on and on until he returns. Youth ministry is optional to the plan, right? VBS, optional. Having a church building is even optional. This right here, making disciples, not optional. It's fundamental to the plan. It is the plan itself. And so let me just be very clear. It's a false teaching that says that we today, as Christians, aren't bound by the command to make disciples. Thank God that that false teaching hasn't gained traction before you and I were discipled in the faith, right? Because it's conceivable that you and I wouldn't be Christians if it had. So let's get practical here at the end of this first point and ask a question. The question I was originally going to ask was, at the end of this first point, was are you making a disciple right now? But I actually want to ask a different question. On further reflection, I want to ask this question. What sort of disciples are you making in your life? What sort of disciples are you presently making in your life? And I want to ask it that way because I was reminded this week that in a sense, we're all making disciples, aren't we? When I think back just on my past week, I think about conversations I've gotten in. I've um, tried to talk someone into watching certain shows on Netflix and saying it's not worth your time to watch certain other shows on Netflix. I've tried to be persuasive on certain forms of political engagement in a conversation I had with someone. I have um, made statements um, to the watching world inadvertently um, about my loyalty to certain brands or to certain sports teams. Um, I've... uh, debated the pros and cons of certain vacation destinations. I've been trying in some way to shape and form and mold the others around me in all different sorts of ways, even just in this past week. And I imagine that if you thought about it, you would think that you've done the same. So the question isn't really, are we making disciples? It's what sort of disciples are we making? To what end are we forming the people that God has placed in our lives? So that's why when when people complain that they would make disciples of jesus but they just haven't been trained to do so my response is always the same it's well who trained you to make disciples of the chicago bears who trained you to make disciples of um your skincare line that you have fallen in love with who trained you to make disciples for apple products that you swear by right We evangelize, to use that term in all those areas. We preach the good news about all those different things that feel like good news to us without any teaching or training having been done. Nobody taught us to make disciples on those ways. We just do it because we really truly believe that that's good news that we want to share with people. And so we see then that the failure on our part to make disciples of Jesus is rarely actually about any kind of lack of training. What it actually is more often is that we ourselves haven't tasted and seen the goodness and beauty of the risen Jesus to the extent that it's bursting out of us the way it's bursting out of us to talk about so many other things that we actually have come to treasure. But listen, I I don't want to suggest that there's no value at all in asking the question of how to make disciples, and that's exactly what we get guidance on here in this next part, as we look at the process of making disciples here in verses 19 and 20. If the command to make disciples is the central command of this passage, there are three other action words in verses 19 and 20 that provide some color regarding what that process looks like. There's going and baptizing and teaching. So first, going. There's the call to go, therefore, in verse 19, and make disciples. And Again, if you've been in church for some time, you've probably heard many sermons on this. You may have even heard conflicting takes on what the significance of this word go is here. I want to encourage you to look at the highlights this Thursday to read a more full explanation of that. But for our purposes this morning, here's what I want to say about this word go, therefore, and make disciples. Go. The go implies that there's some level of intentionality that's going to be required if we're going to make disciples disciples. In other words, none of us will ever stumble into disciple making. If we're hoping that one morning we'll just wake up and realize that we've made a disciple, um, we're unlikely to have that experience, there's got to be some intentionality of going places we wouldn't have ordinarily gone if we weren't intentionally trying to make disciples, or seeking out conversations with people we ordinarily wouldn't have sought out conversations with, or sending out missionaries from this church to places in the world that are in need of the gospel. There's some intentionality that needs to be involved, I think, that's required by this word go. And so the practical question here for us on this word go, on this going, is just, are you hoping right now that you will just stumble into making disciples? It's unwise to do so. You, you may well have opportunities within your daily, everyday rhythms, the people that are in your home with you, the people that God's placed in your workplace with you, the people that work out next to you or go to the same Starbucks that you do, but just going through your motions, taking in each day as it comes, is unlikely to result in you making disciples if there's no accompanying intentionality. Um, so this morning, God might be calling you He might be calling someone to go out on the foreign mission field. This might be the morning that someone senses that call. For someone else here, they might sense the call to start prioritizing time with a specific coworker that you haven't prioritized time with before, for someone else. There might be a sense that you get this morning that it's time to start working out at the same time every day or going to the Starbucks at the same time every day so you start seeing the same people and you're going to start being intentional about those conversations. I don't know how the Lord will direct you this morning, but the question we're asking here on this word go is what aspect of your disciple making currently reflects the intentionality wrapped up in that word go? Remember, we said there's three words, though, that flesh out what it looks like to make disciples. There's going and then baptizing. Baptizing is the second one. We had a baptism here this past week that we were able to celebrate, Matthew Firestone. Uh, That was a great joy for us. And we said there during that baptism that baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality that this person has been transformed, has been included in the family of faith. In other words, that this person has become a disciple. So if we are to be a disciple-making church— it will be increasingly characteristic of us that we are a people who share the gospel with people who don't presently know Jesus, who aren't already his disciples. And so the practical question here is just, are we sharing with people who don't already know Jesus? I've said once before from this stage that many of our most thoughtful, unbelieving friends, including the staunchest atheists, are confused when they realize what it is that we believe and they recognize that we haven't ever shared with them what it is that we believe because they say things like this i put the quote on the screen from one prominent atheist once they say things like how much do you have to hate me in order to believe that you have the only way to god the only way to eternal life and not try to convert me to your way of thinking how much do you have to hate me to withhold that from me and in that sense We have to say that our unbelieving friends and neighbors are right on. That it really is a form of hatred to have the cure to a disease that's killing our friends and neighbors and not offer it to them. So there's going, and then there's baptizing. That means that there's got to be a a, a component of each of our lives in which we're sharing the gospel with people who don't know. But if this passage stopped on that word baptizing— We might think that the call to make disciples was more or less just a call to make converts. We'll see here that it doesn't stop with baptizing. We move on to uh, teaching. The third action word, teaching. Unless we think that all this is about is winning converts, Jesus corrects that. He says it involves teaching. It involves teaching what? He says teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. All that Jesus has commanded could be summarized through those two great commandments that he mentions, right? To love God and love people. But I think the language used here where he says, Teach them to obey or observe all that I have commanded you is a reminder that Jesus taught on any number of things, right? He fleshed out those commandments to love God and love people in a number of specifics that are very practical for our lives. Jesus taught on money. He taught on sex. He taught on marriage, He taught on business, he taught on enemies, he taught on social justice. You name it, Jesus probably taught on it in some way. And so as we're discipling others, part of our responsibility as we're making disciples, discipling others in the faith, helping them grow into intentional followers of Jesus who are forever becoming more like him, is to teach and train in such a way that our brothers and sisters will be able to navigate life as a Christian in all these different arenas that may not be clear to them. What should be clear to us at this point is that none of us then ever mature beyond the need to be discipled. From the person who's a new believer to the pastor to the person who's been a believer for 80 years, we all need to both disciple and to be disciple because none of us yet is perfectly following all that Jesus commanded. You're probably thinking, though, that there's another implication of this, that every disciple then should be able to provide some level of basic instruction, teaching and training on how to live out the faith in any number of areas of life. And so, if someone came to you today after service and said, you know what, you've been walking with the Lord a little bit longer than I have, would you help me learn the ropes on what it looks like to be a Christian in this world as a mom? Or... What it looks like to be a Christian in the corporate world like you are? Or what does it look like to be a Christian as a single person? What does it look like to be a Christian as a married person? What does it look like to be a Christian as a teenager? Can you help me? Would you be able to help them through that at some basic level? Help them navigate what you've come to navigate as a Christian? If this morning you consider that and you realize, actually, I think I'd be at a loss in some areas if someone came to me and asked me, what it looks like to follow Jesus with my finances, for example. Then I think the action step is a different one. It's maybe just this. You probably need to find somebody to disciple you. Find somebody in the church who's been walking with the Lord a little bit longer than you have and ask them if you can get together a few times and if you can ask them questions about what it looks like to follow Jesus in a particular area of life that you Don't feel equipped to follow Jesus in, to teach someone else how to follow Jesus in. And spend some time with them. And if they say no, uh, ask somebody else. And if they say no, ask somebody else. Eventually, you'll get to Pastor Craig and myself. We'd be glad to disciple you and then commission you to teach others and train others in what you've learned. Um, But this is actually the most fundamental task of any church is to create an atmosphere in which this is happening everywhere you look. That... Every member is doing ministry that people are discipling other people, training them up in the faith. And some of you have not found that yet at North Sub, and we want to help you find that. Others of you, I know, have already found North Sub to serve you well in this way. You've started coming here. You've recognized that you needed some training in certain areas of the faith. You didn't know how to pray, didn't know how to read the Bible well. And so you told us about that, and we matched you or paired you up with somebody, encouraged you to get together with somebody who's further along in the faith and you started meeting with them, and you started to learn how to pray, how to read the Bible, how to do the things, navigate the Christian life in some ways that you didn't know how. And now you're getting ready to offer that same kind of discipleship to someone else. That's why this is the second movement of our mission statement, to disciple people in the Word, because we want to be a church where this is happening everywhere you look. Do you believe that you could do that? that you could play a part in that every member ministry, that you could be discipling someone if you aren't already? If you don't believe that you can do it, this last section might be the piece that you're missing, the ground and goal of our disciple-making being the presence of Jesus. You see, Jesus knows that this call to make disciples is a daunting one. I mean, it really should be daunting to us if we really understand what it is. The disciples don't even have to protest to Jesus or tell him how daunting it is. He preempts what they must be feeling by saying in verse 20, And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. I think there's at least two major implications of Jesus' reassurance there at the end of this passage. First major implication deals with how closely this promise of his presence is tied to the commission that he's just given. In other words, imagine this. Imagine we as a church said, you know what? There are other churches on the North Shore that are better at outreach than we are. It's just not a strong suit of ours. But what if we were the church? Let's become the church that is the intimacy with God church. We'll just really major in that and be really good at that. We'll really pour a lot into our worship experiences And this would be the place that you go on the North Shore if you want to really experience intimacy with God. We'll leave the outreach to some of those other churches. Would that be so bad? Hopefully, based on what we've already seen, you would agree with me that that would be disobedient uh, on one level. But I think there's another level on which, ironically, we wouldn't actually be able to achieve that goal that we were going for of intimacy with Jesus if we were a church that just huddled together seeking intimacy with Jesus. Do you see what I mean here? Look at verse 20. Look at the context in which Jesus promises that he'll be with us always to the end of the age. What's the context here? It's in the context of a people who are going out and making disciples. So, ironically, on final analysis, the very presence of Jesus, the intimacy with him that we seek, by staying alone in our prayer closet, or only huddling together with other Christians, we can't attain it in its fullness unless we're going out and making disciples like he called us to. And that's the context in which he promised to send the fullness of his presence. A second implication, I think, of this promise is, deals with the effectiveness of the mission. In the Old Testament, there are also missions like this that people were sent out on, and it often is accompanied by something like this, a promise from God that, God, I will be with you. And each time, there's a layer of that that is something like this, your mission will be successful because I will be with you. It should be clear that it's no different here. Um, Jesus is assuring his disciples, not just that he'd be with them, but that their mission will be successful ultimately because he's with them. So friends, that's really good news for us, I think, because we don't have to feel fear failure. We are a people who will have the presence of the risen Jesus and the person of his Holy Spirit going with us as we go. And so no matter how much we fumble and bumble through our efforts of disciple-making and do it awkwardly and clumsily and not that well— We have a promise from Jesus that disciples will be made, that this will happen, that the gospel will go to all nations, and some that we share with will become disciples of Jesus. There's no promise that every individual will, but there's a promise that if we, the church, do this, that some of those that we share with will become his disciples, some from all nations. That's why... Pastor Craig started 2019 by calling on us to raise the spiritual temperature here before we launched into anything regarding outreach because we could have the best laid outreach plans, but if we tried to engage in those on our own power, we have no hope in it being effective. It must be empowered by God's Holy Spirit. So think about this with me. If the presence of this man Jesus is enough to make our daunting mission effective, to guarantee that it will be successful and that disciples will be made if we're faithful to the call. Jesus must not have been exaggerating back in verse 18 when he told his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Like that's a massive claim. What Jesus is saying is that the self-imposed temporary limitations that he had allowed to be placed on his authority have now been removed now that he's been raised from the dead. The spheres in which he was exercising authority have now been enlarged in such a way that there's no man, no woman, no government, no corporation, no individual that is beyond the scope of Jesus' rightful um, exercise of his authority. In heaven or on earth. I think when we reflect on that, the massive authority that Jesus is claiming here, that he has, then that word, that simple word in verse 19, takes on a lot more weight and significance. I'm thinking of the word therefore. Easy to pass over that word in verse 19, but that word therefore ties so tightly our call to go and make disciples to what has just preceded the authority of the one who's sending us. And maybe a contrast is helpful as we consider how important Jesus' authority is to our mission. Imagine that Muhammad or Buddha sent out followers on a certain mission. You can't imagine that Muhammad or Buddha would ever say something like, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and do whatever, because they didn't. They never said anything like that. They wouldn't have dared to say anything like that because great religious leaders that they were, still, they never claimed to be anything more than prophets or teachers of the religion or the philosophy that they espoused or embodied, right? We've got something categorically different here in the words of Jesus in Matthew 28. He's in a league of his own. He's saying All authority in heaven has been given to me. Only God can say that, friends. Only God claims to have all authority in heaven. And Jesus makes the same claim in a different way in verse 19 when he tells people to baptize in the name of the Father and in the Son and the Holy Spirit. He puts his own name in between God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not just claiming to have given good teaching and send out. He's claiming to be the very God who will go with his followers. And then when he says he has all authority on earth, he's saying both that he has the rightful place to issue marching orders to his disciples and he's saying that he is actually able to superintend over all the activity going on on this earth in such a way that he will make the mission successful. Once again, only God can do that. So when we zoom out on verses 18 through 20, we see that the command at the center to make disciples is sandwiched on either end by a discussion of Jesus' presence. And so that's why theologians have talked about Jesus' presence in this passage as both the ground and the goal of our mission. Both the ground and the goal of our mission. To use a track and field analogy, Jesus' presence is both the starting blocks that we launch out from and the finish line that we're looking toward. He's not only empowering us to run the race and make disciples, he's also the one we're looking toward and we're seeking to experience more and more of as we go. And so because he is both the starting blocks and the finish line, I think maybe there's a two-part application here to close out our third point. On one hand, if you're one of those who find yourself exhausted this morning trying to carry out this mission to make disciples on your own strength, maybe what you need to hear is Jesus is your starting block. Maybe what you need to do is take some time there with Jesus in his word and in prayer to be captivated by a vision of him so great that it's overflowing out of you and launches you out of those starting blocks onto the mission to make disciples so that you aren't doing it on your own strength anymore. But on the flip side, if you're one of those who has heard the starting gun and then you sat down cross-legged at the starting blocks because you knew Jesus was the starting block, so you want to just stay there to crave that experience with him and try to get more and more of him, maybe what you need to hear this morning is that Jesus is your finish line. Fix your eyes on him at the end of the race and he promises to give us the fullness of his presence, not when we only worship with one another and in privacy, but as we go and make disciples. So our big idea today is this. Because the one who goes with us has been given all authority, let's make disciples who will continue the mission until Jesus returns. Because the one who goes with us has been given all authority, let's make disciples who will continue the mission until Jesus returns. That right there, friends, has always been plan A for the preservation and expansion of the kingdom of God and the Christian church. And actually, there's never been a plan B. Because this has been the only plan that God has, Has ever had. What that means is that the Christian church, the Christian faith, is never more than one generation from extinction. Have you reflected on that? That if our generation, for example, chose not to follow his command to make disciples, the Christian faith would, in theory, go extinct right there. But praise God, the one who has authority in heaven and on earth, will not let the faith go extinct. He will raise up workers for his vineyard. He will raise up workers for the harvest, and he will ensure that this mission is carried out and that disciples are made from every nation until he returns. The beautiful thing is that he gives us a choice as to what part we'll play in that story. It doesn't all ride on us, thank God. The Success or failure is not riding on us. He ensures the success of the mission, but he does give us a choice of what role we'll play in the story. So, for us as North Sub, the question is this. What will our role be in this story when it's all said and done? Will it be said of us, North Sub joyfully participated in the mission of God by... Being discipled and making disciples on the North Shore and beyond until Jesus returned? Or will our role in the story have been the risen Jesus fulfilled his mission that disciples would be made in every nation to the ends of the earth despite North Sub's obstinate resistance to the call to make disciples? If we think we're disciples but don't make disciples, we aren't actually disciples. Let's be among those um, who for 2,000 years now have listened to this call and heeded it and made disciples. Let's join all the true churches in the last 2,000 years who have sought the presence of the risen Jesus as we go and make disciples. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the chance we've had to reflect during this series on what it looks like to be a disciple of yours. We thank you for the mirror that this series has shown through your word on our own lives as individuals. It's helped us to clarify and confirm our own status as your disciples and spur us on toward greater conformity to your image. We thank you for the mirror it's been for our church as we look for ways to become more and more like you as a corporate body as we seek to be intentional followers of you as a whole, as sisters and brothers in community. Lord, we ask that as we reflect and go out thinking about this last mark of a disciple, that we'd make disciples. We ask that you'd show us opportunities to do so, you'd give us courage to do so, that we'd be so filled and overwhelmed by the knowledge and experience of your greatness and love, that it would just overflow out of us. It would spill out of us like it is so many other ways in which we make disciples in our world. In Jesus' name, amen.